versus the challenges and the successes that are all accumulated in this room today, bound together by the precious blood of Christ to worship and to fellowship. This is beautiful, and the world is nothing like what we have in the church. Amen. For two months, we as a church have been surveying the great truths of the gospel and their many implications as have been explored by Peter and laid out for us to feast upon. And this has certainly taken us into some very deep theological waters, but sweet waters, and every drop of it a precious gift from God. And how we should all desire to plumb these depths that are here in First Peter and get from them every treasure that is waiting for us to find. This is our responsibility, to plumb these depths. And today is much the same. We do come to a very practical passage in First Peter, and yet this very practical, everyday passage is grounded in the profoundly theological. And so we will find ourselves yet again swimming in the deep waters of God. So as we read earlier in the chapter in verse 13, prepare your minds for action today. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare them for action. We're going to look to answer two questions this morning. How does obedience purify our souls? And what is the nature of the love that we are supposed to have for one another? Again, how does obedience purify our souls? And what is the nature of love we are to have one for another? So let's read our passage. I, we'll, we'll be looking at verses 22 through 25 today. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. If you have your Bible open already, please follow along. Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Father, I pray that this morning, as we hear your living and abiding word, that it would endure within us and grow, grow into something beautiful and eternal. 
We thank you for this word and that you speak it to us, that we can come to it at any time and there find life. Let there be life this morning. Lord, I pray that as we consider your words this morning, our love for one another would also grow and how we would yearn to show love and to grow in love towards one another, sanctifying ourselves and honoring your son. I pray it all in his name, so precious. Amen. So before I get into verses 22 through 25, I want to pull on a thread that's woven throughout chapter 1. Back in verse 3, Peter writes that you who are among the elect have been born again to a living hope. Meaning that God has awakened you to Jesus Christ, to love him and to desire him. And this is something that God has done monergistically, unilaterally, without any aid or influence from you. As Peter says in verse 3, he has caused you to be born again, to, to grow in this new birth. He has caused it. And then there's the phrase in verse 14, obedient children. Back in that verse, Peter is not exhorting the readers, us, the elect exiles. He is not exhorting us to become obedient children. He is merely acknowledging that we already are obedient children. The elect have heard the gospel and have responded in faith. And faith is the only possible obedient response to hearing the gospel. Again, that is something God has done. He has caused you to receive the gospel in faith. If you have ears to hear, if you have eyes to see, then God has given them to you. Your obedience through faith in the gospel is a gift from God. And then the theme continues. You get to verse 16. You hear God say that he has made us holy, not because we are holy, But because he is holy, he has done it, and he calls us holy. And so I want to take all of these ideas and simplify them into a single theological term, justification. Peter is talking in all these ways about your justification. When God justifies the elect, at that same moment, he brings you to spiritual life. He causes you to love Jesus and see in him the greatest, most precious treasure all creation has ever seen. God causes this. He makes us obedient children. He makes us able to respond to the gospel with with an unshakable faith and a living hope. But when we come to verse 22, we see there something different Something else seems to be going on. Look at verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So we've run headlong into a very complicated sentence right there. And it doesn't end until you get halfway through verse 24. So it's going to take a lot of thinking to understand what's going on in this complicated verse. And if anybody can accurately diagram that sentence, see me afterwards. First, 
Peter seems to be indicating in, in verse 22 that we have something to do with the purification of our souls. That we have a role in purifying ourselves. Look at that first phrase again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So how is this not a contradiction to the thread that I've just been pulling on of justification that runs through chapter 1? How is this not a contradiction? It's not a contradiction because it's a second thread that is likewise woven through chapter 1 and set in parallel with the first. Yes, God has made you holy, and you are to be holy in all your conduct. Yes, we are children of obedience, but now we must live in that obedience. So God is totally and entirely responsible for your justification. But now that you have been born... As children of obedience, we work with tremendous help from the Holy Spirit for our sanctification, for our growth in holiness, for our more complete obedience. So here we have these twin threads woven through chapter 1 of justification and sanctification. And so to continue continue Peter's logic and not abandon these twin threads, which run through the chapter and they run through our lives, obedience mentioned here in verse 22 is a result of our justification, not a means of our justification. Let's say that again. This obedience is the result of our justification, not the means of our justification. To miss that point is to miss the gospel. In other words, God has caused us to be born again. He's, call, he's justified us. He's called us holy, children, obedient. And then we grow spiritually by being obedient to him. We live out our justification through obedience, which is the same as saying we are obedient to the truth, which is what he does say in verse 22. With every act of obedience, our former disobedient selves are purified in that we take them to the cross and we crucify them with obedience to Christ. And so as we are further purified, then we have a greater readiness and a greater willingness to obey again. And obedience leads us to further purification, and that purification then leads us on to further obedience. And here we have a cycle of obedience and purification, the nature of spiritual growth. This is sanctification. How do you grow spiritually? Obey. Grow in obedience. And you might compare obedience to a spiritual muscle, The more you use it, the stronger it gets, the heavier that you're able to lift heavier things and you're able to go longer distances. Your soul, once emaciated and dying by the plague of sin, is now strengthened and alive and vigorous through obedience. And you are responsible to exercise this muscle. You can't rely on somebody else to do it for you. You are responsible. 
Of course, spiritual growth and sanctification is not your work alone, despite what I've just said. It's paradoxical. The Holy Spirit is very much alive and active in every single work of obedience that you do, and it's beautiful. He is the power within it. He's the metabolism that drives the muscle, the electrical signals that that fire it. He's the protein that's needed for your obedient growth. But sanctification is always, will always be a partnership where justification is monergistic, sanctification is synergistic, meaning that we have a role in it and so does the Holy Spirit. It's a partnership and God asks us to work with him, to come along in this labor where we grow in obedience and purification. And in case that's not clear here, let's see what Paul has to say. And I think you're going to hear a lot of the same elements that Peter's talking about. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, uh, 12 and 13, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's going back and forth here. You do. God does. You do. God does. This is sanctification. It is God working within you so that you can work and will and desire for his good pleasure. That's amazing. And as Paul mentioned, the willing and the working, that's all about obedience. Obedience. And this obedience, this process of obedience and purification, sanctification is exactly what Peter has in mind here in verse 22. And I love that we have just spent all this time thinking about 10 words. That could be a whole sermon unto itself. We could go much further with that, but we will move on because sanctification has an effect. And love, obedience, has an object. Sincere brotherly love. Sanctifying obedience happens through sincere brotherly love. And now it's getting powerful and practical. How are we sanctified? Through obedience. How do we obey? Sincere brotherly love. One of the effects of the new birth, of our justification, is that we obediently love the people of God. You can't escape this. If you are born of God, then the love of God is in you. And so if you are one of the elect, born again to a living hope, then you do obediently love the brothers and sisters. And we need to be crystal clear about who Peter is talking about here. It is not love of neighbor, as Jesus does command us. We are to love our neighbor, which is really all people. This is a much more specific, profound, deep kind of love, though, that Peter is talking about. 
The brothers in brotherly love here in in verse 22 are those of the faith. And not just the male members. That term was used generically to refer to all male and female of the church. Peter is talking about sincere love for those in the church. Sincere. Without pretense. Without hypocrisy without deceit and we're going to talk more about those things next week when we begin chapter two those those things that undermine our love one for another but true sanctifying obedience a response to all the great things that god has done for us it does not pretend to love the people here You cannot pretend to love the people of the church. We do it with sincere brotherly affection, with authenticity, genuinely loving one another. But of course, that doesn't mean that we love each other perfectly. I've yet to see that. I've yet to do that. (laughs) Loving others in the church is, is challenging. Because we're all a bunch of broken people with a lot of sanctification to go. I among the most. But in obedience, we sincerely desire and work to love one another more truly, more completely. And yes, we must, we most certainly should desire this more to love better than we do. Which is precisely why Peter follows these words with a command. The command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. A command to love. And what you can't see in the English is that Peter has changed words. He changed the word for love. Formerly in verse 22, he uses the word uh, philia. Then he changes it in the command to agape, where philia signifies brotherly love, which can be shared among friends. Agape signifies the kind of deep, strong love that binds together a family. And this love must be held earnestly and from a pure heart, which is very similar to saying sincerely, sincere love. And earnestly, that signifies intensity, an intensity of love, striving, longing, straining to love one another. Justification caused you to love one another. Sanctification would drive you to love one another more deeply, more completely, more truly, more profoundly, so that your affection for one another, moves you from friends to brothers and sisters, to fathers and sons, to mothers and daughters. Just as Jesus himself said, who are my mother and brothers? And looking around him, at those who were seated around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Likewise, 
Whoever lives in obedience to these truths, these are your family. The church is our family. So look around this room. Whoever you see here who does the will of the Father, these are your mothers and brothers, your sisters, your sons and your daughters. Here, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Brothers and sisters, I am so often pleased by how you do love well at Emmanuel. And right now, there are some of you working together to help an aging individual find suitable housing and get on in life. Some of you go out of your way to drive people to church, making sure that they come here. A number of you meet together and help carry each other's burdens. You open the Bible together and you disciple one another. You open your homes to one another. You cry together and you laugh together. You celebrate and you mourn together. And we all, with our diverse backgrounds, with a wide variety of preferences and opinions, with all kinds of weaknesses and strengths, we are a family. And this is the household of God. Love one another earnestly. From a pure heart. Nothing on this world compares to the church. There is no other city set on a hill, a light unto the world, than the church. And here we find this sanctifying love that would make us more like our Savior. When the government advised us that we should shut down in response to COVID, with respect, we did that for four months, four long months. What the government does not realize, and I don't know that it will ever realize, is that it was asking a family to not gather together. Just as distressing as it would be to be separated from your natural family, as it was for many of you, so should it be when you are separated from this supernatural family of God. We do not gather because it is nice to have a social connection or because we belong to this club called Emmanuel. We gather because we are bound together by the precious blood of Christ, adopted by God the Father, born into the same living hope, and we come to worship as a family. We worship the God who has done all of this in song. We worship him even now as we receive his word together. And our very gathering, this, is an act of worship. That God can take individuals as different and as sinful as all of us and make out of them one holy people. Together we are the living reminder of the power of Jesus Christ. Together we are the embodiment of Jesus on earth. Gathering as a church family is obedient worship to our great Father. Let us not forget it. So can the government tell us that this is non-essential? Never. And should we act with or without COVID as if church is non-essential? Never. 
Shall we treat the church like we treat restaurants and go where the staff is nice and the food meets our preferences? Never. To do so would be sinful and disobedient to the apostolic command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You should be as committed to your church as you are to your family, if not more. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the day as you see the and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We can't forget Peter's point. You exercise your muscles of obedience to the God who has justified you by loving one another. Your sanctification will languish or flourish in large part based on how you are loving the people of the church, your sisters and brothers in Christ. How foolish it would be to make a habit out of not going to church. Or thinking of the church as some institution that merely exists to serve your preferences. The phrase, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, is absolutely biblically incoherent. This is our family. Without a doubt, there are times rare times, where we are to leave the church we are in. And if it ever happens here, you should go. Where if from the pulpit what is being preached is not the gospel, and there's no change in sight, where there's a hardened heart of the people, and they don't want Jesus. If these things happen, if anything but the gospel is presented here, Go and leave those other places that that's happening. And wherever the gospel is being proclaimed, go there and take as many people as you can with you. And if you think my language is strong, it is, then I want you to, well then let us consider where Peter takes us next. Verses 23 through 25. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Again, Peter's working with one continuous thought, although it might be hard to see how he's doing it. How do these two verses, or these three verses that we just read, help us to understand Christian love? And first we need to understand Peter's illustration and the context of the passage which he is quoting. So the passage he quotes is from Isaiah 40. He quotes verses 6 and 8. We'll read 6, 7, and 8. A voice says, cry, and alas, 
I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And the point is clear. What man produces is fading and temporary. What God accomplishes through his word will never end. This refers to both God's word in spoken form and in written form. When God speaks, it always accomplishes, it always lasts. And a testimony to the endurance of God's word is that here we are some 2,000 years after Peter put pen to paper examining the same words. It lasts. What I say today will soon be forgotten. I'd be quite pleased if a quarter of the sermon is remembered by the end of the day. But I pray that God's words, that the Spirit so graciously allowed to come out of my mouth, will have a lasting effect. And now this illustration in our verses. Peter is contrasting the procreative nature of God and man. So human seed is perishable, is failing, and is weak. And the human seed is so weak that God ensures millions be released to fertilize a single life. And even if that life were to grow into great success and fame and power and riches, it's like a flower that blooms in splendor only for a moment and then falls brown and wilted into the dirt. All the might of men amounts to a moment. It is a passing vapor. We are like passing vapors. Or we would be. For that which is born of God's seed will never fail or fall. What God gives life to will live always and he makes whatever he makes beautiful will always have its beauty will endure eternally as beautiful what is the life giving beauty beauty producing seed that that god so in it, huh. <laughs> what is the beauty producing seed that god sows that has such lasting and eternal effect it is the gospel of jesus christ Peter says in verse 25, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the seed of God that eternally produces beauty and life. And right here, I want to put a parenthesis. This is why church must be centered around God's word and not programs and not some diluted, seeker-sensitive attraction and not the talent of the worship team and not the eloquence of men Church must be centered around the faithful and potent proclamation of God's word. And this is my great endeavor and my happy burden as your pastor here. And until God says otherwise, I will proclaim the oracles of God with all the grace that he allows. So will all the others who share this pulpit. And when we sing, we sing the gospel and not the mere feelings of men. 
As a poet writes, hammer away, ye hostile hands. Your hammer breaks, God's anvil stands. The church is about the anvil that stands, the enduring word of God, so that all people will know joy in God. That is what this church is about. Let's close that parenthesis. God's seed sown through the gospel lasts forever. But how exactly does that relate to Christian love? We haven't answered that yet. How exactly does this relate to Christian love? And a Christian love that is so deeply committed that we think of each other as a family. What Peter is doing is answering an implicit question. A hidden question. What is the reason that we are to love each other with such deep commitment? Why? I'll paraphrase the answer that we find in verses 23 through 25. Because God spoke, you were born, and you were born to live forever. But there's another connection. If you are one of the elect, justified and born again, you will live forever. And so will all the other elect. Together we are beings that will live eternally. And that is a long time to be with one another. God does not want us to wait until heaven to start loving one another. We're a people who are supposed to be praying every day Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, when we love one another earnestly from a pure heart, a little bit more of the kingdom of heaven touches earth. God's will is done a little bit more through our love one for another. And we are further sanctified as individuals and as a people as we love one another in obedience to the truth of the gospel. And once more, it is the truth of the gospel that impels us to love one another, that is our, the driving fire within us that would cause us to burn with love for one another. And how can it not be? Because Jesus said this to us. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. A couple verses later, he says, These things I command you so that you will love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then before the cross, Jesus prays to his Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. What is the glory? 
that the Son of God has given to us our love for one another, that we may be one even as the Son is one with the Father. Unbelievable. Can you see how concerned Jesus is that we love one another? We're so united that we are one. He died for this. To take a people so broken and different from one, of the, from one another and make out of them a pure, spotless bride. Sanctified and holy. Purified by her love one for another. Since you have been born again like this, Earnestly love one another from a pure heart. This is your eternal family. This is how you live obediently to Jesus Christ. By your love, one for another. Let's pray. Father, this is perhaps such a giant mountain in front of us to love each other despite all of our, our own selfishness and pride and sinfulness and then all of the sinfulness in the, in the others. So Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to love truly from a sincere heart Would you eradicate hypocrisy and pretense and pretending as we interact with one another? God, would you make out of this group a family? And you are, but would you do it more so that when people see what's happening here at Emmanuel, they will see that we are your disciples. They will see that the Son has come from the Father and that the Son is life. God, may our love one for another be like a city on a hill and a light unto the world and it would draw people in that our worship would increase and this family would grow and more and more of your elect would come home. Thank you for this wonderful command and for the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish it, and that we're not left to ourselves, but have you to work with and in and through. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.